We are in Ruth chapter 3. We're continuing our study in the book of Ruth. And if you're looking for that and you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the provided Bibles near you. And if you don't own a Bible, then please let that be a gift uh, from our church to you. We would love for you to take that home, read it, mark it up, meditate on it. That's going to be on page 223. And then we're starting in verse 1, but just if you're not familiar and when it comes to the Bible, the big number is the chapter, the little number is the verse. And so as I make references to verses, I'm not talking about anything musically. I'm just talking about the, the little number within that chapter that we're looking at. So let's look at that. Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. Father, come before you. Grateful for the gift that it is to be able to gather. We are grateful for this. Lord, we're grateful uh, for the privilege to look at your word. This is a regular habit to, to look at your word and to consider what it says. And we ask that as we look at it, you would show us clearly what it says. Help us to apply it faithfully to our lives. God, we thank you for this body, for 
for the way that you continue to build your church and for the way that you sharpen us. We do pray that as we look at your word that we would be sanctified. Lord, we thank you for the families here. We think of expectant mothers. Lord, as there are several. Think of the Heron family, the Davis family, Lord, our family. We pray for health for each of those mothers and the children. Prepare those families for transition. God, we thank you for the volunteers that do serve our congregation. I think specifically of the community group leaders, the way that they open up their homes, the way that they facilitate conversation for the sake of unity and building up, for the time that they put into hosting and preparing conversation and discussions and studies. Thank you for the way that they serve. And God, on this 4th of July weekend, we thank you for the freedoms that we have. Lord, thank you for those who have fought for us, who have gone before us so that we may enjoy freedom. Lord, be with those who are missing loved ones. Be with those whose loved ones are serving. God, we pray that you'd comfort them. God, we pray for our police department. Thank you for the way they serve our community. Pray specifically for Chief Charles Chandler that you would give him wisdom to lead. Do the same for our fire department, Chief Brian Miller. God, especially on a weekend like the 4th of July weekend, it's, I'm sure, a busy one. So please give them wisdom and protect them. Lord, as we think about the freedom that we have, we thank you for the freedom that we have ultimately in Christ, who went before us and secured our freedom. Lord, we could not do that ourselves. And so we thank you for him. We pray that as we look at this passage, that Christ would be magnified. We pray for other churches in the area, think specifically of Cornerstone Community Church, that the gospel would be proclaimed and that you would bless that. Lord, thank you for the gift that you've given them recently of allowing them to raise up more elders. It's a gift to their congregation. Lord, think of Covenant Community Church in Newark. Lord, thank you for their love for the word. We pray that we too would be a people who love your word, not just for head knowledge, so that it transforms our hearts and equips us to share the good news and share who you are with others. God, we pray that you would give our church courage to do that, that not only would we grow in our knowledge and understanding of you and that we would love that and that we would be sanctified in that and grow in holiness together as a body, that we'd also invite others into that. Be with us as we look at this text. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. On September 18th, 2006, a band that some of you may have heard of named The Killers came out with a song titled When You Were Young, and it opens with these lyrics. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read the lyrics. You sit there in your heartache, waiting on some beautiful boy to save you from your old ways. You play forgiveness. Watch it now. Here he comes. He doesn't look a thing like Jesus, but he talks like a gentleman, like you imagined when you were young. On December 2nd, a few years before that, December 2nd, 1993, the band Salt and Peppa came out with the song, What a Man. And it opens up with the lyrics, which you've probably heard, What a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. And then just the year before that, the movie, A Few Good Men, with Jack Nicholas and Tom Cruise. You know the one in the courtroom where Tom Cruise is saying, I want the truth, and Jack Nicholas tells him, you can't handle the truth. That came out just a year before that. And the truth is that no matter what age you're in, 
good men can be hard to find. As we look at this text, what we see is that Ruth needs a good man. She needs a man who is willing to step up and redeem her. And the plan of redemption that Ruth and Naomi have been working rises and falls on one man, Boaz. The plan of redemption rises and falls on the character of their redeemer, Boaz. And so if you're joining us this morning, you haven't been with us the last few weeks as we've been going through Ruth, our, our normal practice is just to look at a book and to go through it passage by passage. And normally, we just have somebody stand up here and help us understand what the text says and then how to live faithfully in light of that. And then we try to tie it to the gospel because we believe every portion of Scripture ends up being connected to Jesus in some way. And so the background of this book, Ruth, just to help us better understand it, is that it was taking place in what the authors describe as the time of the judges. Which, as we've pointed out, if you look one or two pages before that, at the end of the book of Judges, you see that that time period is described as a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Not what was right in the Lord's eyes, but what was right in their own eyes. And so chapter 1, just a quick recap, chapter 1 we saw there was a famine. And then Elimelech took his family and he decided to come up with a plan and he led them to Moab, away from Yahweh and his people. And then Elimelech dies, as well as his two sons who had married. And so now Naomi, Elimelech's widow, is left with the two widows of her sons as well. And so she tells her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab because they're Moabites. But Ruth reveals to her that, hey, I've been converted. I no longer identify as a Moabite. I am, I am now with your people. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And so Naomi reluctantly allows Ruth to come with her back to Bethlehem. We said essentially God uses trials, providential trials, to bring us back, even when we have gone far from him. And then chapter 2, last week, what we saw was that Ruth and Naomi, as they come back to Bethlehem, where previously there was famine, they're coming back to Bethlehem, and it's the beginning of a harvest. And so the famine's over, and now there's harvest. And Ruth hatched a plan to provide for her mother-in-law. She's going to go ahead and glean. She's going to go behind the reapers and try to glean. And we pointed out that's essentially like picking up aluminum cans and trying to recycle them for a meal. So it's not a great way to live, but it is the plan that Ruth has come up with to provide. And we're introduced to Boaz in chapter 2, and we're told that he is a, quote, worthy man. And we notice that Boaz sees Ruth working, and he is... Reminded, or he's, it's pointed out to him, the character of Ruth. She's works very hard. She only takes a small break. And then Boaz, we see, his kindness, his hesed, his loyal and steadfast love is shown toward Ruth and Naomi by providing generously for them. He allows, them, he allows Ruth to glean really closely to the reaper so she gets the best of what's left over. Then he invites her to his table. She gets to eat until she's fully satisfied and has leftovers. Then he sends her home with a week's worth of food, 30 pounds worth of grain. But then if you look at the end of verse 2, verse 23, we're kind of left with a, just a cliffhanger. It says, so she, Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So they came when the harvest was starting and 
she decided she she ends up working for Boaz and gleaning, and she does that until the end of the harvest, which we said was about six to seven weeks. Or is left with a, a cliffhanger. What happened? Is is anything going to happen between these two? She just works and lives with her mother-in-law. And when we get to chapter three, we see that things do begin to pick up. So this, this doesn't take place in a matter of just a few days. It's helpful to know this was weeks on end. And so now we enter the portion where the harvest is coming to an end and Ruth and Naomi are making another plan. And so as you'll see in chapter 3, we're at the end of the harvest and there are four points in your bulletin if you're following along. These are the four points. We see another plan We see a bold proposal. We see a comforting promise and a faithful provider. Another plan, a bold proposal, a comforting promise, and a faithful provider. So if you look, first five verses here, we see another plan. So chapter three, right here in verse one, makes a reference to chapter one. In verse one, you see Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not Seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. And so, if we remember chapter one, when Ruth's kind of shooing off her daughters, her daughter-in-law, she's saying, look, I'm, I'm no good for you. I'm not going to do any good for you. I'm, I'm too old to marry. I'm not going to be able to have kids. And even if I were to have kids, you're not going to wait for them to grow up to, to marry you. So it, the, your best bet is just to stay in Moab. She's trying to shoo them off. And when she's shooing them off, when she's trying to tell them, like, hey, this is our parting of ways. It's okay. She wishes for them three things. She wants them to have kindness shown to them. We see chapter 1, verse 8. She wants them to find rest. And she wants them to find a husband. Kindness, rest, and a husband. And Naomi left that conversation pretty down. I mean, she's pretty negative throughout the book until about midway through chapter 2. And now... Here's what, she, here's what she does. Because her disposition toward God has totally changed. She now begins to seek rest for Ruth. So she wanted the Lord to provide those things for them. And now she takes the matter into her own hands. She, she's saying, hey, look, I'm going to try to answer this prayer. God seems to have shown us some kindness. Let me see if I can continue to be used by the Lord to bring about that rest that I was praying for you. She believes now that God can actually provide those things. And so they make a plan. Notice that they don't sit idly by. They take what they know and they make a plan off of it. And so it's, it's also important to note that during this time, there's no Christian mingle. There's no Facebook Messenger or text messages or Bethlehem Bachelor or anything to find singles who are like-minded. And so... Naomi's trying to make a plan. Hey, I've recognized this man Boaz seems to be a man who fears God. And on top of that, he's one of our redeemers. He's a close relative. So he is qualified to redeem us as a family. And so she begins to make this plan. And we notice that in chapter 2, that chapter started off in a similar way. You can make the argument that it also started off a similar way in chapter 1. But we see in chapter 2, a plan being made to provide. In chapter 1, a plan was made from Elimelech. It was less explicit, but Elimelech takes his family over to Moab to try to provide for them in the midst of famine. 
chapter 2, Ruth is making a plan to provide for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And now chapter 3, Naomi is making a plan to provide for Ruth. And Christian, if you're in the room, you're wondering, what should I do? I have, I have these various options in front of me. I'm not sure what decision to make. Listen, one of the greatest ways that you can show your trust for God is by making a plan, submitting it to him, and then taking action. You don't have to wait idly by for the clouds to come together and tell you exactly which direction to go. Make a plan based off what you know from God's word. Submit it to God. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And then take action. It's one of the greatest ways that you can show that you do, in fact, trust God. But let's look at Naomi's plan. Let's look at it closely. We're looking at verses 2 through 4 here. Part 1, it has three parts. Part 1 has to do with appearance. So he says, put some effort in. Wash yourself. Saying, hey, Naomi, you've been working a lot. Or Ruth, you've been working a lot. Take a bath before you go and present yourself to Boaz. And she says, anoint yourself. So, so smell good. Recognize there wasn't deodorant around. So she says, hey, go get your essential oils and make sure that you smell decent as you go to present yourself to Boaz. And she says, put on your cloak, which essentially is saying, hey, during that time, there, when you were mourning the loss of somebody, you would wear different clothes to signify that you were mourning, that you, were, you weren't necessarily uh, tied to somebody, but you're also not looking right now. And so Naomi is telling Ruth, hey, put away the mourning clothes and put on a cloak. Put away the funeral clothing, wear something nice. So part one has to do with appearance. Part two of Naomi's plan has to do with timing. She's saying, wait for the right moment. Wait till he's done eating and drinking. Wait till he lays down next to the wheat and the barley. And then make your move. We hear the, the phrase, time heals all, all wounds. Whatever you think of that, whether you believe that or not, I am convinced that timing can prevent many wounds. And so she's telling Ruth, hey, make sure your timing is right. It's a good thing to, to wait for the right time here to pursue Boaz. Proverbs 27:14 kind of gives us a little bit of light into the timing aspect. It says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice in the morning will be counted as cursing. You bless your neighbor. You are such a great neighbor. Thank you. May the Lord's favor be upon you. You've got a megaphone doing that. But if you're doing that at 530 in the morning, it might seem more like a curse to your neighbor than a blessing. Timing is important. And so Naomi encourages Ruth to make sure that she is choosing the right time to approach Boaz. Hey, don't do it while he's working. It's been a long harvest and he's now trying to bring everything in. You might irritate him if you do it then. Wait till he's done drinking and eating when he's a little bit more merry and then go ahead and approach him that way. And in part three of the plan, so the first part was appearance, the second part was timing, the third part was depend on Boaz. They're trusting Boaz to be the man that he has portrayed himself to be. He will tell you what to do, is what Naomi tells Ruth. The success or the failure of the plan rides entirely on Boaz. And so Ruth agrees. 
Notice in verse 5, she says, all that you say, I will do. Notice how much Ruth trusts Naomi throughout this whole process. She goes with Naomi to Bethlehem. Naomi makes plans. She, I mean, Naomi says it, Ruth does it. Christian, I wonder if we trust God like that. We see what God says in his word. We're grateful for that he has provided it. It's his kindness to us, his grace to us to, to give us his word. Do we trust God the way that Ruth trusts Naomi? James 1.22 tells us, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Ruth heard Naomi's words and then she acted. She did what she heard. In the same way, us this morning, we have opportunities all around us to act. As we look at God's word, we see what he calls us to. Are we seeing those things and are we walking away from them as someone who forgets what they look like after looking in a mirror? Or are we being doers of the word as well? If you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder who in your life do you trust the way that Ruth trusts Naomi? Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's somebody you admire, maybe it's a podcast or a news outlet or a YouTube channel. Whoever it is, who do you trust the way that Ruth trusts Naomi? Someone who says something and more often than not, you're doing it. Who is that? If that is not the risen king, then that is a false god. But what we should see in these first five verses is that trusting God requires action. Trusting God requires action. Make plans, submit them to God, and then do something. Don't wait idly by. Do something, trusting God to provide. Maybe you're in the room and you're anxious. The idea of acting on those plans seems really nerve-wracking. I would encourage you to rest knowing that you will not mess up God's plan. You are not powerful enough to do that. Submit your plans to God and then do something. Then we see a bold proposal, verses 6 through 10. So after Naomi now gives this plan to Ruth, we see Ruth listens and she goes. So look at me in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now before we get into that, it's helpful to know some things about the threshing floor. So the threshing floor was where farmers would go to separate the wheat from the chaff. So the grain from the casing around the grain. Now this winnowing or this threshing would typically take place at night because in order to separate those things, what they would do is they would throw the the grain and the casing, they'd throw it into the air, and then the breeze would blow the light casing away, and then the heavier grain would fall to the ground, and typically fall on a a hard rock surface. And so what they needed was a a breeze of some sort. If there's no breeze and you're just throwing it up and down, it's just falling to the ground. You You need that breeze for the threshing to take place. And typically, nighttime, there's a little bit more of a breeze that's going through. And so threshing typically took place at night. In addition to that, it's also normally, this threshing floor is also normally located on top of a hill because at the top of hills you're going to get more breezes as well. 
But something to notice or something to know about this that, that's really important is that the threshing floor is a communal place. It's where the whole town would come together, as you'll see in either Westerville or Hilliard or Worthington, wherever you are, you're probably going to see some form of downtown area where a parade's going to go through this week, this or tomorrow. In a similar way, when the harvest was done, there would be a big party, it'd be a big celebration as the harvest has come in. This is their way of being provided for, and so they're rejoicing. They just came out of a famine, remember? And so now there's, there's a harvest. And so the, most of the people there remember what famine is. And so when a harvest comes in, they're grateful, and they want to rejoice. It's a place of celebration. Now, with that celebration came some immoral behavior. Hosea tells us that, or at least indicates in chapter 9, that there was the typical practice of prostitution that would go on at the threshing floor. So, Naomi is sending Ruth into a relatively risky situation. Ruth has no national protection. Remember, she's a Moabite and she's in Israel. She does not have a husband to protect her. She's a widow. She also doesn't have any family to protect her. Her only form of family is an aging widow, Naomi. And so Ruth is pretty vulnerable going into this place. Threshing floor would be kind of similar to a, uh, like a nightclub on New Year's Eve. Not exactly the place where I would want to send my daughters to find a good godly boy to marry. It's just not exactly the place where I'm going to be sending them. But something that's just helpful as we read passages like this is knowing the difference between uh, the descriptive and prescriptive. So we're in narrative. That type of literary style describes a lot. And so when we read these passages, we're seeing the author describe for us what's going on. So if you have daughters, it's not necessarily saying that you should send them into a really immoral place where prostitution is going on to find a husband. Okay? This is descriptive, not prescriptive. But, even as we look at this, and we see Boaz, what we consistently see time and time and time again as we look at this book is that Boaz's character is consistently elevated. He's at the threshing floor because he's a farmer and he has to be there to separate things, but there is no indication that Boaz was engaging in any form of sinful behavior, even though it was all around him and easily accessible. So Ruth follows the plan. She, it's a risky plan. She enters into this place being vulnerable. She's not sure exactly how it's going to go. She listens to what Naomi says. She waits until Boaz lays down. She uncovers his feet. And then there's no indication that either Ruth or Boaz engage in any form of sinful behavior. However, you uncover someone's feet when there's a lot of night breezes going on. Eventually, it's probably going to wake them up, and Boaz does wake up, and he's startled. There's a woman laying at his feet. He went to bed alone. He wakes up. There's someone there. He's a little bit concerned. So he says, who are you? We see this dialogue begin to ensue between the two of them. So he says, who are you? This is weird. Who are you? And remember, it's, it's midnight when he is woken up. And it's not like there's a light switch where they can just switch on the light. So someone's at his feet, he can tell, but he can't see who it is. So he's asking, who, who's there? And Ruth responds, she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Now, 
Look just a little bit further back. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 13. We receive Ruth say to Boaz, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And so during the initial period where she's approaching Boaz, she does not identify as one of Boaz's servants. And now we see she responds in verse 9 of chapter 3, I am Ruth, your servant. Something has changed. Since being welcomed by Boaz, she's taken on a new identity. And so Ruth says this, she says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Now something to know about this is that it's not a sexual reference. Any reputable commentator points out that what this is saying, that term wings could also be translated as the corners of a garment. So he's saying, hey, take the corners of your garment and spread them over me. Now that's metaphorical language for saying, hey, cover me, I'm vulnerable. Marry me, redeem me. And we get this from Ezekiel 16, 8, where God makes a similar statement to Israel. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 16. He says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So in Ezekiel, we see God telling Israel, I covered you. I took the corner of my garment and covered you, and we entered into a covenant together, and you, who did not have someone, you now became mine, and I will take care of you. So now when Ruth, over here, says, spread the corner of your garment over me, she's saying, cover me, I'm vulnerable, enter into a marriage covenant with me, make me yours. Which is a super bold proposal. I mean, it's really... Really bold. But Boaz here responds, and he responds positively. He just got woken up in the middle of the night after working really hard, and he responds positively to a, a really bold request. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So what's, what's the first kindness? He talks about this last kindness and the first kindness. This first kindness that he's talking about is the way that Ruth has taken care of Naomi. She has pursued Naomi's good. And Boaz has heard about it. We see that in chapter 2. And now this last kindness Boaz is referencing is the way that Ruth did not go after young men, poor or rich. She, she apparently was a decent looking woman. And she was young, so she had her pick. I mean, Boaz had to tell the young men earlier in chapter 2 not to touch her, not to get anywhere near her. And so there were, she had her pick. But instead of choosing that, she chooses the one who is related to Naomi. She chooses family loyalty. And Boaz says, hey, that first kindness toward Naomi, toward your family, was incredible. He said, but this... This second kindness, this last kindness, is even greater. You are not only seeking the physical well-being of your mother-in-law, but you are seeking to preserve her line. That is an even greater kindness. It's a greater hesed, a 
We've been talking about that word, that Hebrew word hesed. It just means loyal or steadfast or faithful love. And it's one of the greatest themes, the biggest themes that we're going to see throughout this book. But he says that kindness, your last kindness here, is even greater than the first. However, Boaz, even though he's complimenting her, he hasn't given her an answer yet. And so you make a proposal to somebody, will you marry me? And the person says all these nice things about you, and you haven't been given an answer yet, you might like hearing those things, but at the same time, you're a little bit nervous. Especially someone like Ruth, who is, again, in an extremely vulnerable situation. Boaz could take advantage of her. Somebody else could take advantage of her. Boaz could rebuke her or chastise her for waking him up after bringing in the harvest. After all, he's, he's the boss, and she interrupted him. She's asking a huge question. And here's the thing. Even though she comes to her Redeemer boldly, it all depends on the Redeemer. All of Naomi and Ruth's planning comes down to Boaz. Tony Marita points out, he says, the riskiness of the strategy Naomi commends to Ruth serves to expose the one thing that will make it secure. Boaz. And so for us here in the room, we see Ruth and Naomi making plans, and it all depends on one person, their Redeemer. As we make our plans, let us be reminded that they always are dependent on our King. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So as we make plans, this is why sometimes you hear Christians say the term, Lord willing, or if the Lord wills. It's not just us being weird. It's us seeing what the scriptures say and saying, hey, we got this, these plans to go to the Westville 4th of July parade tomorrow, Lord willing. If the Lord allows, we're on going to that. That's why you hear Christians say that, that sort of thing. And as we see here, Ruth and Naomi making these plans, it all depends on Boaz. And as we make our plans, it all depends on our Redeemer. We submit all of them to him. But Christians, specifically Christians in the room, we, like Ruth, can approach our Redeemer with boldness. Ruth is approaching Boaz and asking a massive favor of him. Marry me. Take care of me. Redeem me. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, if you have embraced the gospel, if you have trusted Jesus to take away all of your sin and to provide you with the righteousness needed to be right with God, then you can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? Because anything that would have kept you from being bold, your past sin, your past mistakes, your past failures, have been covered in Christ. And so now those things that would have kept you from approaching God with boldness, they're no longer there. It's the good news of the gospel. And so now we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Hebrews 4 talks about this. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of 
need. Those who are not following Jesus, let me talk to you. If there's anything keeping you from going boldly to the Redeemer, please consider bringing that to him yourself. Take, take that to him as well. Say, Lord, it seems like I'm having a tough time approaching you because of this thing. I want to submit my life to you. I want to trust you to take this away. Do that. Call in the name of Christ. There is a Redeemer who, is, who has been made available to you. Don't keep yourself from going boldly to him. Go to him. And after coming to a Redeemer boldly and giving this bold proposal to Boaz, Ruth receives a comforting promise. So now we're looking at verse 11. We see Boaz, after he gives all these nice things saying, saying to Ruth, he now gives her the answer that she is looking for. He says, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. He's saying to her, hey, I've been, I've been giving you these compliments. I know, I know you're worried. I know there's probably that thought in the back of your mind that I may take advantage of you, or I may chastise you, or rebuke you, or be upset with you for coming to me and asking such a bold request. But he tells her, do not fear. I won't chastise you. I won't rebuke you for your boldness. Daniel Block, commentator, points out here in this passage, he says, here is a servant demanding that the boss marry her. A Moabite making the demand of an Israelite. A woman making the demand of a man. A poor person making the demand of a rich man. From a natural perspective, the scheme was doomed from the beginning as a hopeless gamble. And the responsibility Naomi placed on Ruth was quite unreasonable. But it worked. Poaz says, I won't chastise you. I won't rebuke you. I won't take advantage of you. I won't reject you. You come asking for redemption? Do not fear. I will provide for you. I will do for you all that you ask. If you come to Christ asking for redemption, he will provide it. That is the great promise that we have. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, if you come to Christ asking for redemption, it is yours. In this text, what we consistently see is two people of great character. Boaz, who is a worthy man. We see that in chapter 2, first verse there, where he's described as a worthy man. And then we see Ruth described as a worthy woman here in verse 11. And so this questionable setting where a lot of immoral stuff tends to take place only serves to highlight the character of both Boaz and Ruth. Despite the opportunity, neither one commits sexual sin. The opportunity was there. In fact, it may have even been expected during the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Yet, neither sinned. Now, Ruth is super comforted by Boaz's promise to redeem her. However, there is a wrinkle in the plan. This is something that Ruth and Naomi did not foresee. There is another redeemer. Another redeemer on the scene. 
that they didn't realize, but Boaz, who had clearly been doing a little bit of research to know that, okay, there's somebody else here who's before me. There's one other redeemer who is closer than he is. And so that individual has the opportunity to redeem Ruth, to redeem Naomi. And so Boaz, although he says he's willing to do it, he's second in line. Someone else has to go first. And Boaz, his moral character is again displayed because of his honesty. He's clearly interested in Ruth. It would have been easy for him to say, hey, let's just, let's just do this. Let's just go. Let's go to the courthouse. Let's make this happen. And then say, oh, whoops, I guess we forgot about that other guy. But his moral character is elevated even more so in his honesty here. There's a redeemer closer than him, but he promises to look into it ASAP. He says, okay, I'm going to look into it tomorrow. I'm going to take care of it tomorrow. I'm going to go. And then either way, Ruth, you're going to be redeemed. Whether that's through him, the one who's closer redeeming you, or whether that's through me. Redemption is promised. So despite the risky plan, Boaz agrees to redeem Ruth. And he promises that redemption will take place. Ruth came to him with a huge request, a very bold request. And notice Boaz wasn't angry. He wasn't frustrated. He wasn't annoyed. He wasn't disappointed. He didn't take advantage of her. He comforted her. Brothers and sisters, your Redeemer is not bothered by you going to him and making bold requests. By you going to him and asking him to move in a way that seems impossible. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, says, come. Come to me. He has purchased the right for you to come to him so that you can go boldly. You do not need to feel bad about going to him with some of your biggest and largest requests. And also, despite your setting, despite the historical setting that we find ourselves in now, continue to pursue holiness. We see Ruth and Boaz, despite their historical setting, despite what may have even been expected of them, they pursue holiness. And if you're in the room this morning and you're hurting, going through a particularly difficult season of life, just want to double click on that and say, hey, you are able to take your hurt to the Redeemer. Take it to him. He is not going to be annoyed or frustrated. And when you do, you will find a faithful provider. It's the fourth point there. So look with me, if you would, in verse 14. We see Boaz continue to care for Ruth and Naomi. You see, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Boaz cares about Ruth's reputation. He wants to ensure people don't suspect any sinful behavior. Because you can imagine the setting where this woman is with Boaz and the morning comes and she's leaving. People start to question and wonder what happened. He's trying to protect her reputation. Nothing sinful took place and he wants to make sure that no, nobody has any reason to think otherwise. But he doesn't just care about her reputation. He also cares about her and Naomi's physical well-being. So he sends her home with six measures of barley. Now remember in chapter 2, we talked about an ephah and it was 30 pounds worth of grain, which would have amounted to weeks worth of food. See Boaz providing generously. 
this passage where we see six measures of barley, an ephah, 30 pounds, providing for weeks, six measures of barley is anywhere from 60 to 90 pounds. So it's two to three times what he provided just a few weeks earlier. And so what he's saying is two things. One, it's a symbolic gesture that I'm going to take care of you. You don't need to worry. You're going to be taken care of. Here, take six measures. Just take, I just did the harvest. Take a ton of food. Take what you need. Then it's also, just practically speaking, it's a reasonable explanation for why Ruth would have been at the threshing floor to begin with. And so now, Ruth goes back. She tells Naomi about everything that's been going on. She shows up again with all this food. And Naomi tells her to wait. Now, can you imagine... Ruth's anticipation. She had lost her husband, likely a few months ago, and then they show up to Bethlehem alone, not really sure how to provide, and she is made aware of this man Boaz, and she finds out that he's a redeemer, and now the opportunity for long-term security is within grasp. It's right there. But here's the thing, she can't grasp it. She is entirely dependent on the Redeemer to redeem her. Someone else must choose to redeem her. It's completely out of her hands now. But every time she has gone to Boaz, she has been met with faithful provision. She goes in with the request, he faithfully provides. She goes in with the request, he provides more than what she can even handle. He goes through, she goes to him with a huge request to redeem her. He says, I will, I will do it. I will look into it immediately. Everything Boaz has said he would do for Ruth, he has done. He allowed her to glean close to his reapers. He invited her to his table. He gave her 30 pounds of grain. And then he promised her redemption, whether that's through him or the closer redeemer. And now he gave her 60 to 90 pounds of grain. And now Ruth just has to wait. Christian, waiting on the Lord can be hard. You can only imagine Ruth's anticipation while she waits to hear back whether or not her and her mother-in-law are going to be taken care of long-term. But know this, God is faithful and he is trustworthy. And so as you wait on him, know that he will do for you everything that he says he's going to do for you. Romans 8 Starting in verse 29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And it goes on, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Look at, no one falls through the cracks. From start to finish. If he has started a good work in you, he will see it through all the way to glorification. If you are right now in Christ and you are waiting on him to act, know that however he chooses to act, it will ultimately be for your good, which the verse right before that, Romans 8.28 says, and it will ultimately lead to your glorification. God is faithful. He's a faithful provider. And you can wait on him with comfort. We have been given a redeemer, brothers and sisters. As we see everything that Boaz has done for Ruth, and the story's not done. Lord willing, we'll finish it next week. Everything we've seen Boaz do for Ruth, Christ has done for us on an exponentially greater scale. We have, as some would say, a mighty good man. A man who, has, who says, come. A man who 
has made a plan of redemption and has not only made that plan, but has executed that plan perfectly so that we can come before him with boldness, go to him with a bold proposal, ask for redemption, submit your plans to him. And you, like Ruth, will be met with a comforting promise, a promise of deliverance, a promise of forgiveness, a promise of steadfast, faithful, loyal, hesed love. And he will faithfully provide you with life everlasting through the Redeemer that he has provided. The plan of redemption rises and falls on the character of the Redeemer. Boaz was a good Redeemer. Christ is a great Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for your word, grateful for the way that you in your kindness have provided a redeemer, a redeemer who is perfect, a redeemer who lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He is a good man. Thank you for providing Christ. We pray that as we look at this text, we would see all the things that Boaz did for Ruth and we'd rejoice in that, but we'd rejoice knowing that it's even more fully accomplished in our great Redeemer Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.